Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, as, as it is every year, you know, I have the unenviable task of, of, of kicking things off this morning. In many ways, you know, I can't wait to get past this sermon and get to all the other guys uh, that we have speaking this week. Because you know, this year's speaker lineup, it's, it's, it's always like this, but certainly this year in particular, includes some of my best friends in the ministry. And I can't wait to hear from them. They are, they are good preachers, and, and more importantly, they are good men. And they're godly men, so I'm excited for you to hear from them uh, this week as well, just as I am excited. I also know that God has something for each and every one of us this morning. And so we still have some business to attend to now. And for First Baptist Church, that business involves closing out this four-week series on issues facing the church. Craig mentioned that. While at the same time kicking off this conference. And with respect to our Issues Facing the Church series, we've been looking at the various wars that we're dealing with as a church at large, as individual believers. And so we've talked about a worldview war, we've talked about a culture war, we've talked about last week, last time, we talked about a family war. But as we close out this series and, and kick off this conference, our, our topic this morning is going to be the next generation's war. As our folks uh, are aware by now, the next generation is the theme of the Certainty Conference this year. We're trying to answer the question of how we pass on our doctrinal DNA to the next group of leaders and pastors and church members. And, 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 and I want you to know right here from the beginning, I don't, I don't think this will come as any surprise, that that war is already raging. There's currently already an ongoing war particularly in the lives of young folks, over the things we believe and teach. And it's imperative that we do not lose what we have with respect to our foundation and our fellowship. You see, I, I think it's safe to say, and I certainly don't say this prideful at all, but I think as far as a, a fellowship goes, a group of churches, we have a decent handle on God's Word. You know, maybe, maybe there are others out there that, that better, I don't know, but, but, but I think we have a decent handle on it. And we need to keep that. That's our foundation. That's what we're going to be talking about specifically this morning. We're going to, we're going to get there in just a second. But, but I also want to mention that there is a synergy in what we can accomplish together as the Living Faith Fellowship. Those of us who all have that same foundation— and we need to keep that as well because there are always forces at play to get us to doubt the Bible that we hold in our hands and to disrupt the unity that we have because of the common belief we have in that Bible. And this is a fight in which we all need to step up to the plate too. I've told our folks, it's, you know, these wars that we're talking about, that you know, sitting on the sideline isn't an option. They're coming at us whether we like it or not. So we need to be ready to engage. But when it comes to the, this particular fight over our foundation. There's not a more important fight that, that's facing the church today. You know, I've asked you this question, I've asked First Baptist Church this question before, if the Lord tarries, 
will this church still be standing in another 50 years? And as I stated when I asked you that the first time, I don't mean just simply still meeting on Sundays, playing church. I mean standing on the truth of God's Word. And we can hope we will, we can assume that we will, but hopes and assumptions don't get us where we need to go. We all need to take ownership and responsibility to ensure that, in fact, it does remain, that the next generation is strong and fruitful and faithful. And so we all have a part in that. Every church member has a part in that. And that's not just applicable today, it's true in the future as well. We, we all have a role in the direction that our churches go from here. So because of that reality, as a church, as a fellowship, we just don't have the luxury of getting comfortable. So you can't get comfortable, and I can't get comfortable. We are in a war, so we need to be on guard and ready for that war. And where we need to engage, and what I want to study this morning, is on that foundation. This is the next generation's war. It's the foundation of biblical authority. It's the foundation of biblical authority. I put that in your outline sheet for those of you that were able to get a bulletin when you come in. All the notes will be in there. But this next generation's war is the foundation of biblical authority, and specifically, maintaining a faith-based view of the Word of God in order to hold to our stated position that the authorized King James Bible alone is our authority. That this Bible right here is perfect, and it is enough, and that it's worth giving our life for, because we have a certainty of its truth. And while we can trace that certainty in manuscript evidence, and we even have a class on that very subject in our Bible Institute, manuscript evidence isn't where we start. We start from a position of faith in that book itself and what that book says about itself. And it says God has promised to preserve it. Most of you know this, Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The words of the Lord are pure words. Proverbs 35 says that as well. Every word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And the word pure or purified, it, it means refined. It means perfected. And because they're pure words, because they are purified words, and we can trust them. And we have certainty in them. And God wrote them to give that certainty to us as our, our theme for this conference, what, what this conference is named after. It's found in Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21. Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth? that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send thee. That is our foundation, the certainty of the words of truth that we hold in our hands in our Bible today. But the question that I have for all of you this morning is, is simply this. So that is our foundation. Is it your foundation? Is it yours personally? Do you have a certainty about it? And to be able to answer that question honestly, or, or those two questions honestly, there, there are three levels in which we need to be certain with respect to our position on the Word of God. 
So if we want the next generation to be able to win this war of biblical authority, or at least set them up for success, with the same doctrinal DNA that we hold, then there are three certainties that we need in our lives today. And it's going to take us a, a minute to get to them, but we're, we're going to see those certainties in the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning and you aren't already there, I invite you to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 7. We're, we're just going to be looking at the final two verses of that chapter, verses 28 and 29. And if you know anything about the book of Matthew and this section of the book of Matthew, you know that there is this extended section of Jesus' teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew chapter 5. It spans three full chapters all the way through chapter 7. It's the largest chunk of continuous teaching we see from Jesus in the Gospels. And, and that teaching is of great significance doctrinally with respect to the kingdom of heaven, with respect to the dispensation to come, known as the millennium. But our task this morning isn't to focus on Jesus' teaching. It's to focus on the reaction to his teaching. Because again, we are trying to pass on some stuff to the next generation. And we can only pass on what we have. We can only pass on what we possess so we need to possess and exhibit the same certainties seen in Jesus. Ones that his next generation certainly saw in him and did not forget. So we see this reaction in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 28. Look there with me. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, ended the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, what is initially interesting to me in this passage and, and pertinent to our topic at hand is the astonishment of the people listening to Jesus. It says that they, the, the people were astonished at his doctrine. And the word astonished there in Matthew 7, 28 is defined just like you think it would be in, in the same way we use it today. It means to be amazed, to be in awe, and not unexpectedly, it's the exact same expression used and the same emotion felt toward Jesus' physical healings when he, would, when he would make the lame to walk and the blind to see. We see that same terminology in Mark 7, 37, for example. We see that the people were beyond measure astonished, saying, He had done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. So if you, as you study out, the, the Gospels and the life of Jesus, you see this word used over and over again throughout the Gospels with respect to, to both contexts, with respect to his teaching and with respect to his healings. But here's what you need to grasp. Of all the times in Scripture that we see the people astonished at Jesus, the vast majority are in the context of his teaching. The vast majority are in the context of his teaching, of his words. Way more than his healing. There are way more verses that people are astonished at his teaching than they were at his healings. So Ma Matthew 13, 54, for example, says, And we was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom 
and these mighty works. Matthew twenty two thirty three. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Mark eleven eighteen. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Luke four thirty two. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. John seven verses fourteen and fifteen. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews marvelled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned. And those are just a few of the many examples. See, according to the Bible, the most astonishing thing about the earthly ministry of Jesus during his physical life was not his healings and his miracles. It was his words. It was his words. And that should ring true for us today as well because it's so easy to get excited about the works of the Lord that we see with our eyes the physical blessings that he bestows. But if we want something lasting in our life and something that we we will be able to pass down to the next generation, we need to be in total astonishment and awe of this book. That's what needs to capture our attention more than anything. You see, this is where we need the heart of David, who in Psalm 119, verse 161 said, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. See, the physical, the the persecution, the physical persecution that he was experiencing was less important to him than what he knew and felt about the word of God. Well, listen, that verse right there is why David was a man after God's own heart, according to 1 Samuel 13, 14, Acts 13, 22. Because God's heart is revealed in his word. And when it comes to passing the torch to the next generation, this is where we must start. We need to be in astonishment of God's word. We need to fall in love with God's word. And be in total awe of what it is and what we have access to. And I say that because according to Matthew 7, 28, the people were astonished at his words. And and who were the people? Well, lucky for us, the Bible tells us, and, and this is in your outline sheet as well, the people were the next generation. They were the guys that Jesus himself was training those he was passing the torch onto to carry his word, his message forward. The people were his disciples. And we know this from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, And seeing the multitude, he, speaking of Jesus, went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, He taught his disciples. So the multitudes were following him, but Jesus left the multitudes. And he went up to a mountain. And when he got set up up there, his disciples alone came up to him. And then starting in verse 3, the very next verse, Jesus begins speaking. And he doesn't end his speech, his sermon on the mount, until Matthew 7, 27. And then we move into the, the passages that we read, 7, 28. The people were astonished. And we don't see anywhere where, where anybody else followed him up. Like if you, you know, if you look in your Bible, 
Matthew 5, 3 versus Matthew 7, 27. They're all red. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus speaking. And, and not only that, in Matthew 8, 1, the very next verse after our passage, it says, and when he was come down from the mount, great multitudes followed him. You see, the multitudes were back following him, but not until he was come down on the mount. It was him and his disciples up on the mount. He was with the next generation, those taking the torch. And he was investing in them. And the next generation, those 12, saw the certainty that Jesus possessed. And, and as I've already mentioned, we too are able to see the certainty of Jesus on these three separate levels, and we need to learn from him on this. And the first level of certainty that existed in Jesus and, and needs to exist in us, if we're going to enable the next generation to win the war of biblical authority, is we need to be certain in our doctrine. This has come straight from the passage. We're not doing brain surgery this morning. But we need to be certain in our doctrine. That was the very thing, the most notable thing throughout the Gospels that Jesus' disciples were astonished about. Look, look again, Matthew 7, 28. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at what? At his doctrine. And you know what doctrine is. It is instruction. It is teaching. It is what is believed and taught about what God has said. And when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was spitting some truth that those guys hadn't heard before. And it blew them away. It was so deep, and it was so rich, and it was so new. It was, it was different than the law that, the, that they had, you know, throughout the Old Testament. And he taught it so certainly that it transformed their very being. You know, listen to what Jesus himself said about the things he taught his guys. John 6, 63 said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And I hope you understand the importance of that verse and, and the change that was occurring through the life and ministry of Jesus. And, but, but, but what we need to understand for us is that that is still true today. God's words are life-giving and life-changing. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by what? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You know Romans 10.17, So that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word of God. And it is the Word of God and the Word of God only from which we get our doctrine. And while most of what we teach today, you know, isn't exactly completely new like Jesus was teaching, it's no less deep, it's no less rich, and it's no less life-giving and life-changing. Because it's God's Word. So when it comes to learning and loving and teaching the doctrine of God's word, we're to let God be true and every man a liar. Because it's the word of God that is a more sure word of prophecy. Because it's magnified above all his name. Because it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Because its testimonies are my delight and my counselors. 
because it is settled in heaven. And I say all that because the Word of God says all that about itself. And our preaching and our teaching and our lifestyle should reflect all of that. Because that is what we want and need to pass down to the next generation. But listen, we have to do it correctly. Teaching right doctrine, rightly divided, not private interpretation, not teaching our experience and not even our emotion. We don't get to make up what we think it says. We know 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Any private interpretation is an offense to God. But listen, there is absolutely a correct interpretation of all Scripture, and it can be found. But it takes a little bit of work. It takes some study. It takes the application of 2 Timothy 2.15. And it takes devotion to the Word of God to get in and love it enough to let it be true and every man a liar and, 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 and to dig into it, to see how, what God has for you in it. It takes a devotion to that. But listen, that shouldn't be that difficult because it should be drawn off the foundation of astonishment and awe in God's word. And that astonishment, that awe should drive you straight into it. And when we do all that the way God calls us to, when we study to show ourselves approved and we rightly divide and we, we land on the correct interpretation, and then we preach it and teach it with certainty, the next generation notices. And it gives them something to grab onto and carry forth. It's a cause to rally behind and give your life for. Listen, this is a thrilling promise to a church that exalts the preaching and teaching of the Word of God in the right way, with the right doctrine, rightly divided. That God's Word will go forth in and through that church after the current generation is gone. So please listen to me. The church's most compelling testimony is not wonderful worship sets and great productions and flawless organization. The church's most compelling testimony is the clear proclamation of the rightly divided Word of God. That's it. That is the ministry we have been given. And that is the ministry we need to take heed to with certainty and pass down to the next generation intentionally. This was always the primary focus of Paul's ministry, particularly to the men that God put in his life, the leaders he was training up. This was one of the encouragements and exhortations to his son and the Lord Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Paul said, Let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 
So whether you're young in physical age or spiritual age or both, that's the advice you need right there. Be an example in your words and your lifestyle and how you love and, and how do you do that? How is that possible? It's possible by giving attendance to, to showing consistency in, paying attention to, being given to the reading and exhortation and doctrine. That means you read the Word of God. You study the Word of God. You apply the Word of God and you pass on the Word of God. We all need to be a part of that. It's what our life is to be about. It's the only way to make your life meaningful. But it will never be that until you are certain and certain for yourself about the doctrine. So for all the young folks in here, you need to listen up to me for a minute. It's us old guys. It's our responsibility to teach you. And it's our responsibility to prepare you and persuade you into the mission and call you to something that is so much bigger than yourself. And we want to do that and we desire to do that. But listen, it is your responsibility to do something within with that preparation, that persuasion. It's your responsibility to go study it out for yourself, the, the doctrine that we teach you. What we don't need is we don't need you to just regurgitate what we say. Because you need to make it your own. For you are convicted and you have the certainty of the words of truth for yourself. And listen, I understand. It takes time. I've lived that life. And, and for a while, you kind of are just regurgitating what you've been heard. But there comes a point. You've got to make it your own. And you've got to try it out for yourself. And you have to digest these words. And taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. And I say that because learning God's word is not just an academic exercise. Learning God's word is not just an academic exercise. There is certainly an academic element to it. But primarily, this is a hard exercise. You must make it your own and own it for yourself so that you know what you believe and, more importantly, why you believe it. Because if you can be talked into something, then you can be talked out of it. And you need to know and be certain yourself. And when you are, listen, that is a sign of maturity. The sign of spiritual maturity, that is a sign of being a man or woman of God. Because doctrine is where that starts. You cannot skip that steps. You have to know it. This is the 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We know these verses well. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Right? So that it starts with doctrine. And that doctrine, that reproof, that correction, that instruction in his righteousness is, is for the maturing of a man or woman of God. You see, that the man of God is perfect or mature. That's a possibility. But that means, and that means you're able to reproduce. If you're mature, you're able to reproduce. But you can only reproduce what is in you. And if it's not in you, if it's not in your heart, even if it's only in your head, you're not going to reproduce that spiritually. 
There needs to be a certainty in our doctrine. And when you have that down, then you can speak and teach and lead authoritatively, which brings us to the second level of, of certainty that existed in Jesus and needs to exist in us as we face this war of biblical authority, and that is we need to be certain in our declaration. So we need to be certain in our doctrine. We need to be certain in our declaration. Look at the beginning of verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority. Okay, so you need to, you need to pay attention here for a little bit, and, and let me explain this to you. Because what we see here in Matthew 7, 29, is, is that Jesus taught them with one having, a, as a, one having authority. He taught authoritatively. He, it means in power. So when he declared the doctrine, he did so in that way, with authority, in a powerful way. And we need to be able to do that as well. We need to be authoritative and confident, but, but here is where you need to pay attention. Because that authority and that confidence, I put this on your outline sheet, must be in God's word alone and not in us, not in ourselves. You see, we're not Jesus. So, so we need to declare his word unapologetically, but also in humility. So when I say we need to be certain in our declaration, I do not mean in pride and arrogance. I do not mean in a way that tears people down and, and builds us up. I mean it in a way that lifts up this book and lifts up the Lord. That's it. But when we get that down, we have that right in our life, we can absolutely declare the Word of God in confidence through the power and the authority of God. Because when we are announcing and heralding and declaring the Word of the Lord, the message of the King, then that comes with all of heaven's authority. But again, that authority doesn't have anything to do with us. Or even because there's anything special in us. It has everything to do with the fact that God honors His Word. And as we put in the time to become certain in our doctrine, well, then God's going to honor that when we declare it. And so we can do it with authority. We can do it in confidence. But our confidence needs to reside solely on this book and your trust and dependency in it. And the best example for us of this type of certain declaration done in humility was the Apostle Paul. Because listen, Paul absolutely could have had confidence in himself and, and used his own knowledge and, and, and done it through the flesh. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul said, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee. Listen, Paul had the right training, man. Paul had it all. And that was before he got saved. And then God saves Paul and, and, and chooses to reveal to him basically half of the New Testament, including most of the New Testament ministries. You know, this is a, this is a special guy. And he knew some stuff. Look at, look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me, and God gave it to him, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, 
as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So my man knew some stuff. My man had some revelation. Dude had some insight into the knowledge of God that others didn't. Even Peter acknowledged it. He, in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, in an account of the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. You know, Paul wrote about some deep topics, some things that were hard to be understood. And he wrote about them because he knew about them, because God had given them to him. So listen, Paul was the smartest guy in most rooms. But his certain declaration of God's word had nothing to do with all of that. And it had everything to do with his confidence and dependency upon the Lord and the Lord's word. In fact, look at what he told the Corinthians about his, dec his declaration of God's word. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. He could have, but he came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He spoke in humility and humble terms but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now, it was still with authority. It just wasn't his own. And why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So listen to me. Paul loved the next generation enough to declare unto them the power of God and not the power of Paul. He loved them enough to declare unto them the power of God and not the power of Paul. So we need to be certain of what and who it is we are declaring when we lead. And it needs to be this book and this book alone. It needs to be Christ and Him crucified. And when I'm gone, I don't care if I'm remembered. I want Jesus to be remembered. I want the next generation to carry on His legacy and not mine. So be certain about who and what you are declaring. Otherwise, we're not properly preparing the next generation to, to fight and to win this war of biblical authority because it's, it's biblical authority. The Bible is the authority. That's where our confidence needs to lie. And, but it, that can't happen until we know it, until we do the work, until we're certain about our doctrine. But then we can stand on it unapologetically in complete confidence because God's behind it. And God honors his word. So there's only one final authority. And the next generation needs to know what it is. And it ain't us. Just like it wasn't the scribes in Matthew chapter 7. And that brings us to the third level of certainty that existed in Jesus and needs to exist in us in this war of biblical authority. And that is we need to be certain in our differences. So we need to be certain in our doctrine. We need to be certain in our declaration. But there's some things we need to be different about. And we need to be certain in them. We need to be certain in our differences. Because the truth is, there are some people 
that we need to be different than. And the next generation needs to see something different than us, different in us, and they do in everyone else who do not hold the same positions we hold and in the way we hold them. Look at Matthew 7, 29 one more time. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, there is a very distinct contrast being made in this verse between Jesus and the scribes. And the scribes represent a couple things for us, a couple different ways in which we need to be certain in our differences. And first is we need to be certain and, and to be different in our conviction. We need to be different in our conviction. Because while Jesus spoke with authority, the scribes didn't. That, that's what is being said here. And Jesus spoke with one as authority, not as the scribes. And this was a major difference. And so, you know, what we know historically is the scribes would just reference and refer to the, to the various rabbis that knew the, you know, the rabbinical law. And, and, and so they would refer to Rabbi A and Rabbi B and, and Rabbi C, but maybe it was even Rabbi D, you know, who, who actually understood it the best. You, you see, they're, they're teaching was without conviction, because it was without authority, with multiple references. Or, or let me say it like this, they used multiple versions. It's exactly what we see today in, in many churches with, through their preaching and teaching. But listen, and this is on your outline sheet, if there's not one authority, there's no authority. If there's not one authority, there is no authority. That is how God set it up. And most guys today just pick the Bible version that best matches the point they want to make so there's no conviction to stand on the truth of God's word. And it leads them to, to, to not you know, fully understanding scripture, not making those correct interpretations. That was exactly the situation with the scribes. They didn't understand what God was saying. They didn't understand what God was doing. You see this, for example, in Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12. And the disciples asked him, they asked Jesus, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise also shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. You see, the scribes missed what God was doing in that moment. And they didn't recognize John the Baptist or Jesus for who they were. Because they were messed up on their authority. And they didn't have one. So they got to make it up. And we can't be like that. We have one. We have an authority. And as I stated at the beginning of this message, it's the authorized King James Bible. And, and, and I, I, what I'm about to say, I say it in love, but, I, but I, I stand behind it fully. We don't use others because they're not as good. Maybe they contain God's words, but they're not God's words. And they've not been purified seven times. And our next generation needs to understand that. And be convicted about it in the same way as some of us are. 
And we need to pass down that DNA. Listen, the fight has always been about authority. Going back to Genesis chapter 3. And we saw that when we, when we studied the culture war out of Genesis chapter 3. And I told you then, if you're trying to go back to sometime, you know, in American history, you're not going back far enough. Because unless you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you, know, you didn't go back far enough. The culture war started in Genesis chapter 3. And it's always been a war of authority. And it always will be. That is the issue. And it will become more and more the main issue as we near Christ's return. And one of the guys you're going to hear from this week is, is Mike Renault, uh, pastor of, of Living Faith Boston. We just, Jeff just led a team there a couple weeks ago, and, and, and they spent you know, nearly a week with him doing some evangelism. And, and I, don't, I don't want to steal everything that, um, that Mike is, is going to talk about and tell you, but, but let me just say, Mike and, and Living Faith Boston currently facing persecution, being kicked out of their building solely for their stance on the King James Bible uh, and on the preservation of Scripture. And you're going to hear from Mike, and he's, he's going to get to tell you the, the story in full. But listen, this is going to continue to be the main issue. So there needs to be a difference in our conviction. And, and again, it goes back to knowing it and knowing the issues and making it your own and doing the work to see why we hold the position we hold. It's based on something, and it's based upon what God's Word says about itself. It's it started from a position of faith and seeing the internal evidence that's there, but, but there's also external evidence to prove it as well. And there needs to be a difference in our conviction. But then second, there also needs to be a difference in our character. You see, Jesus, Jesus wasn't like the scribes in multiple ways. And when you study out the character of the scribes, they're, they're not painted in a very positive light. So I want to show you the ways in, in which we need to be different than our scribes today. So he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. And the scribes had some issues. I mean, first of all, the, the scribes are, are described as unrighteous. It, because in Matthew 5.20, while preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For I say unto you, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we need to be different than the scribes because we need to seek true righteousness. And of course, our righteousness is found only in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is none righteous, no, not one. But for those of us who are in Christ, there is a practical element to then living the life of Christ righteously. And that results in being filled with the Spirit and the fruits of righteousness, Philippians 1.11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. And you exhibit those as you live the life of Christ. And, and there are scribes in, in all churches today. There are scribes leading churches today that are unrighteous. And we need to be different from them. You also see in the Gospels that the scribes lied to themselves, which led to them lying to others. They were dishonest. Matthew 9, 3 says, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And that was a lie. And then as you move through the Gospels, you see that the scribes were, were part of this group that lied about and against Jesus. 
Mark 14.1, for example, says, And after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes saw how they might take him by craft. That means deception. It means dishonesty. And put him to death. You know, they didn't have anything that would stick against him. So they had to make it up. And so they lied. They got some false witnesses to lie about him. And this led to them accusing Jesus of, of stuff that wasn't true. And they had been trying to do that all along. In Luke 11, verses 53 and 54, it says, And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak many things. So they're, you know, they're trying to kind of poke and prod him to get him to say something they can grab onto. Verse 54, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So they were accusers of the brethren, which I, th I think we know somebody else is called an accuser of the brethren, right? Revelation 12, verse 10, is Satan. So false accusations, lies are satanic. So we obviously need to be different than that. Honesty is a character issue that we need to take seriously, that we need to pass down to the next generation. The scribes were also prideful and loved the preeminence. Luke 20, verse 46 says, Beware of the scribes, specifically, which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief room at the feast. So according to Colossians chapter 1, it is Christ and Christ alone that deserves the preeminence. So when we love the limelight and, and to be the, 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 the one in long robes and the greeting is the markets and the highest seat and be the center of attention, that is scribe-like. And it steals the glory that is reserved for the Lord. And it starts with pride, and we all know the danger of pride. So we need to be different in that regard than others. Live a life of humility. That is what the next generation needs to see in us especially us leaders. And listen, those last two negative characteristics of the scribes, being dishonest and deceitful, being prideful, those are things the Bible says God hates. The serious business. Proverbs 16, verse 6. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, even seven are an abomination unto him. And then verse 7, look at the first two things on the list the Lord hates. A proud look, a lying tongue. So we can't pass that on. Humility and honesty, that is what we need to pass on because that is what will give God glory. So you live your life his way so that you can be used by him to his glory, that we can show that to the next generation for his glory. We all need to be a part of that, but especially those of us investing in the next generation we need to be particularly cognizant of it and careful about it because that lifestyle causes us to run the risk of being a hypocrite. As the scribes were, seven times in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And we went through this a few months ago, but let me just remind you very quickly. A hypocrite is not someone who messes up. That describes all of us. But a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something they are not. Hypocrisy gets to your intent because it's one thing to mess up when, you know, you're trying to do right. It's another thing to never intend to do right but pretend like you are. That's being a hypocrite. 
And we all mess up. We all stumble. But we don't all try to deceive others regarding who we are. And when you study Scripture, you see this distinction and definition very clearly. The first mention of the word hypocrisy in the Bible is found in Isaiah 32.6. And it's obvious it is not just related to, to tripping up or having a moment of weakness. Isaiah 32.6 says, For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. You see, what we learn from this verse is hypocrisy is an intentional work. It is something that is practiced. And it comes from a heart of iniquity. And it gets back to wanting to appear like something we are not, wanting to appear spiritual when we are not. And there's a problem for so many Christians today. This is so important for the next generation. I think this is the last thing we have on your outline sheet. Because for far too many Christians, it is far too easy to be happy with the image of godliness rather than the reality of godliness. They care about more how they look than how they are. And want to appear like they've got it all together even when they don't. And again, it just goes back to pride. This is obviously prevalent in our culture today, even in churches, even in Christian culture. But when we do it, we're living like the world. Our, our culture is so consumed with image. S social media, it's just about image. It's about how we look to the exclusion of reality. That cannot be us. We must be different, and the next generation needs to be able to see that difference. It needs to be certain, and it needs to be true. There is no doubt there's a spiritual war raging in our midst. We see it every day. And many are losing. But let's not let that be said of us. Let's get it right so we can train others to do the same. Let's be certain about our doctrine. Being workmen in the word so that we're not ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. Let's be certain in our declaration, in humility, understanding our authority, and being confident in that authority, but, but not so much in ourselves. And then let's be certain in our differences. And in being different, let's be better for the next generation's sake and for the glory of the Lord. Because the next generation is worth it, and the Lord and his mission are too. So for the next generation's sake, you need to come out this week. You need to be here every night. Be here in the mornings if you can. There isn't a more important topic for us today. If you are the next generation, we know that you are responsible. You're the next ones in line to hold it, to hold the line. And we trust you to do it to the glory of God. But you need to be here every night too. You need to learn what you need to learn now. Let's have every head bow and every eye closed. And there, you're going to hear a lot of great things this week. You won't regret the time that you invest here again. You, the, the tiredness that you'll experience at the end of the week is worth it. Because like I just said, the next generation is worth it. The Lord is worth it. So let's give him what he deserves. Let's be certain in our doctrine. Let's do the work. Let's learn it let's, so we can pass it on in the right way with the right authority. And let's keep going until the Lord comes to get us. Let's be found faithful to the end, holding this book the way God has given it to us in faith. And we need to be faithful to it. So we got a great week ahead of us. Don't miss it.
But if you need to do business with the Lord this morning, do that. We're about to sing and close out this service in, 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 in one song of worship as we always do. And we'll be taking up our offering during that time. So, you know, for, that's just for First Baptist Church members. So if you're not a member of First Baptist Church, just, just let that go by, you please. But I want to thank our folks for their faithfulness to give to the Lord. He deserves more than our money. He deserves our life. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.